Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I talked to George Eaton and Anusha Kalian about Jeremy Corbyn and who's really in charge of the Labour Party. And the editor, Jason Cowley, chairs a discussion between our features editor, Zan Rice, and our contributing writer, Shiraz Maher, about whether or not ISIS is a threat to Britain. Hello, I'm Jason Cowley, editor of the New Statesman. Welcome to the podcast. I have with me Shiraz Maher, our contributing writer. He's a fellow at the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation at King's College London. And I have our features editor, Zan Rice, who works a lot on our foreign affairs pieces and is a former foreign correspondent in Africa for The Guardian and The Financial Times. Now, Shiraz, you've written yet another excellent cover story for us this week, looking at ISIS, the wider conflict in the Middle East and beyond. And one of the themes of the piece is that nearly 14 years on from the declaration of the so-called War on Terror, global jihadism seems to be stronger than ever. So do you want to just talk a little bit in general terms about that, and then we'll go on to talk more specifically about the ISIS threat? I think one of the things that has become really clear with the current crisis in both Syria and Iraq is just how much of a failure the last 14 years have been. Um, We see the march of Islamic State alongside many other groups right now, but they're clearly the most dominant and most powerful. Uh, In the region, they are establishing effectively a caliphate over two countries right now. And it it strikes me staggering that that this is where where we've come to. So um, that's something I wanted to bring out in the piece. It's a a theme that I think uh, is very important for us to consider in terms of uh, how we begin to confront this threat and and where we uh, take it in the future. And we, we saw in recent weeks the Russian airliner was brought down over the Sinai. Now... This, it seems to be all indications are that it was a bomb and ISIS or their affiliates in the Sinai have claimed responsibility. What is your, your reading of that and what does that tell us about their expanding capacity? I think there's a, a number of factors here. ISIS, if they have got this bomb through and managed to down the Russian airliner, are sending a message. They're sending a message to several people here. The first is, of course, uh, to the Russians themselves, that here is blowback. Here is a price for your participation in this conflict. 
And that's something I actually talked about for the New Statesman uh, a few weeks ago, that there would be a blowback for them. So I think that that's the, the most immediate effect. The second thing, of course, is that it would mean uh, there was a degree of infiltration at the airport itself, and that has huge implications for the Egyptian state. Egypt, of course, has suffered a lot in terms of its tourism industry since uh, its own uprisings in 2001, but it's prided itself largely on being able to say Sharm el-Sheikh is an oasis, it's not a Cairo, it's away from the chaos, and we've preserved it as a bubble, people should continue to come here. Now, this will shake confidence in the integrity of Sharm el-Sheikh as a tourist destination. And I think that's going to further beleaguer the Egyptian government even further. It's going to put even more strain on its already fragile economy. So I think there are tough times ahead uh, for Egypt as well. And then the final point, of course, is that Islamic State is really sending a message to the wider world, both to the Western world and to the broader jihadi world. Because, of course, Al-Qaeda has attempted to get bombs onto planes a number of times since 9-11 and has failed. Or it's been caught. All those bombs have not uh, succeeded in detonating. ISIS has done it essentially at its first go. And so I think that's also a, a very important factor for the group. Was it because um, Al-Qaeda were, 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 to, were through their lone wolves or their operatives in Western countries were trying to work through them and therefore target... British Airways or American Airlines. What's happened, seemed to be has happened here is that it's a it's a soft target. So it's Sham, it's a it's a Russian charter plane. It essentially, could it be that there's greater security around the more prestigious national airliners? I'm not entirely sure how the airlines themselves work in in third countries. So when they're mm. abroad, whether they run their own security checks uh, on the ground, as the, as the Israelis would, the Israelis do, of course. Yeah. They have their own, and they're f- uh, famed for for doing that. Whether British Airways or American Airlines or these companies do that for themselves, I'm not entirely sure. Although I've been told, certainly by people who work on these issues, that in their own words, securing an aircraft is pretty easy. And I think that goes for the the more reputable. Uh, airlines that that are are known around the world. But certainly, um, for some of these other airlines, I think you are taking a gamble. And in that sense, as you say, getting a bomb onto a plane like that at Sharm el-Sheikh, there's a series of steps there that means it's an easier target. Yeah. And I've read a lot on this subject. You know, I've worked with you, edited your pieces and so on and so forth. But reading this one, I was was particularly disturbed about the information you have about how the Peshmerga fighters, the captured Peshmerga fighters, are being tortured and murdered. Can you, can, without giving graphic detail, can you just talk a little bit about what ICE's strategy, if you can call it that, is? Because it seems to be ever more extreme. In essence, what ISIS wants to do is to create an asymmetry of fear. And that is to say that if you oppose ISIS, the level of brutality or barbarism or persecution that will be waged against you will be so extreme and so high that it's essentially designed to make you think again, that you don't even want to take the risk where you might encounter uh, ISIS as a movement. So they've grown increasingly frustrated with the Peshmerga uh, because the Peshmerga have been pretty good at defending their own areas, at keeping ISIS out. Uh, and, And ISIS takes that as an affront, not just to its own fighting prowess and capacity, but also the fact that they don't believe anyone should defy them. Um, so they released this particularly brutal graphic video. Uh, I won't really. As a, as when, when was that released? It was released uh, within the last month. Was it? it was and and did you did you find it on Google? How how did you come upon it? Well, these videos are released um, 
principally over the internet on uh, on sort of file sharing yeah. uh, websites, and, and the links go up all over. Um, as I mentioned, the piece Twitter used to be the primary forum for uh, dissemination of this, but there's a new service that's come out now called Telegram, mm. and Telegram is the new uh, thing really. Um, and, and I mentioned it, of course, in the piece as well. That this is where the government is sort of playing catch up constantly, as it wants to legislate, as it wants to have the debate, and to find ways to curtail these uh, technologies. By the time they've gone through the process of having a debate in Parliament and so on, the technology has actually moved on. They're always legislating for six months sort of behind. Yeah. And before I bring Zan in, as I will, I just want to talk to you briefly about the British government. I mean, 2013, it lost a vote in the House over intervention against the Assad regime after the, there was use of um, chemical weapons and so-called violation of, um, of arms red lines. Now, as I understand it, having spoken to George Osborne, but also one, one, one has clear indications from the Prime Minister as well that they wish to intervene against ISIS in Syria, but fear that they can't get the vote through the House. I mean, what's your reading of that situation, one? And two, what do you think the British government should do? So, in answer to the first question, I think you're right. I don't think they would succeed right now in uh, getting the vote through Parliament in order to bomb uh, ISIS in Syria. So what we're doing right now is really very tokenistic and half-hearted and, you know, if I could say so, really pointless in my opinion. It's completely nonsensical to bomb ISIS in one half of its territory, but not uh, in the other half, of course. Um, and ISIS enjoys a degree of security for, to that end because it's able to... Um, pull back fighters into, into the relative safety and security of, uh, of Syrian airspace rather than uh, Iraqi airspace. More broadly, um, I think the government is also facing a challenge, not just from the issue of getting this uh, debate through uh, Parliament, but also th there is this sort of um, debate taking place amongst some of the commentariat, people like uh, Patrick Coburn, for example, Peter Oborn as well, uh, who have been quite vociferous in making the argument that we should work with Assad. Um, now, I find that, personally, uh, to be an outrageous proposition, and the idea that we should begin to do a deal with Assad um, is, is a complete uh, non-starter. For every crime that ISIS have committed, you mm. can find an equally comparable crime perpetrated mm. by the Assad Absolutely. regime. So it's important uh, the government doesn't lose sight of that. And I think, actually, to their credit, it's not something that the government is seriously entertaining. But there is this pressure in public opinion sort of around this idea that it's better the, better the devil you know. Um, so, so that's the, the, the primary problem there. What can we do? Or what should the government do now? I think it's become such a problem. I, I called for intervention from 2012 and 2013. Mm, I did, thought yeah. we, we you know, had a moment then. Um, I think we've passed that. I think ISIS has Before achieved, the ISIS eruption. Before the ISIS eruption. Um, I think ISIS is now far too entrenched. I think they have achieved critical mass on the ground. I don't see them going anywhere anytime soon. What really uh, you have to do now is try to contain the problem, uh, so to limit the effects of its malignancy, essentially, and allow it to crumble from within. Um, but in order to do that as well, we need to accept, and, and there needs to be a step change in our thinking here, that this is a problem that will be around uh, as a generational issue. Did you say that? And Islamic State, for us, in the 21st century, will be what the Soviet Union was to the 20th century. This is going to be a long, protracted conflict with a sort of quasi-state actor now. You, um, so, if I understand what you're saying, that even if the British government were able to get a vote in the House and win it, action against Islamic State would be futile? I believe so. I don't in think... In other words, bombing in Syria. Bombing in Syria would, would still... Uh, it would degrade their capacity a little bit, but, but 
you can't bomb this thing out of existence because they're not prepared to put troops on the ground to put to troops, retake territory to, I mean that's one way that you could do this you'd have to put boots on the ground but I think the cost of participation now would be unacceptably high it would be so high and our commitment or required commitment in terms of time frame uh, is not something that the British public would ever support Shiraz if we just talk a little bit about the Islamic State's capacity and threat beyond Syria and Iraq um, in the last couple of weeks, they carried out a murder on, on two Syrian activists in Turkey from a group called Rakas being silently slaughtered. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that and perhaps what they, that might mean if they are then carrying out these assassinations um, in the wider region? So this attack um, was carried out against this group. It's a group of Syrian activists uh, who were originally students who were against the Assad regime they were part of the original uprising and protest movement um, and, and deeply committed. And I think their story is very important for that reason. Here was a bunch of guys who were against the tyranny of Assad, who then saw their revolution overtaken and consumed by ISIS. And they're saying, you know, we're, we're opposed to both of these tyrannies. They've been waging a very brave, uh, incredibly brave campaign from within Raqqa. They're really on the coalface. They're Syrians. This is their city. This is their hometown. And they are documenting the crimes and the brutality of ISIS from within its own territory and exposing those crimes to the outside world. It's really the only kind of group of its kind that presents an unvarnished picture of life uh, within ISIS territory. So ISIS naturally uh, has been targeting them and it has captured several of their members in the past inside uh, Syria and executed them. But what made this one so uh, much more dramatic was that they went after them uh, and identified their safe house in Turkey uh, and executed them there and they beheaded them there. And, and that was designed to send a message. And, and naturally now there is widespread panic within that group because they don't know uh, the extent to which their network has been compromised. And when you say they were captured and beheaded, this was filmed, I presume, and then it, distributed? This was filmed. There's a video uh, that's been produced of these activists uh, who, who are dead in their, in their living rooms uh, in, in Turkey with which they believed, of course, was relatively safe. Thanks again for coming in. It's this week's cover story. The headline is um, ISIS and a threat to Britain, but it's a much wider and more detailed report. And it won't be online for a while, so I urge you to pick up a copy of this week's New Statesman to read it. Thank you very much, Shiraz, for coming in to speak to us. Zanweiss, thank you to you too. I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's Pop Culture Podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. Who speaks for the Labour Party? That's the question we're addressing this week. I'm joined by a political editor, George Eaton, and a new Chicadian who is deputy web editor. George, I'm going to come to you first because this is the premise of your column in the magazine this week, that uh, Jeremy Corbyn, who was the most rebellious MP in the party, is now a sort of convert to the idea of collective responsibility and laid down the law at Shadow Cabinet on Tuesday, right? How, how does he make the argument that don't do as I did, do as I want you to do now? It's very difficult for him. Um, yeah, he will struggle to impose discipline, partly, as you say, because of his, his rebellious record, but also because he has just three supporters in, in the shadow cabinet, and most of the others regard him privately, and some have even said publicly, as, as unelectable. So it's very hard for him to, to give orders. And then it's further complicated 
by the fact that, for instance, on Trident, Labour's policy officially remains to support renewal, and the party's conference had the chance to have a vote on that issue. It could have changed policy. Delegates voted not to debate it. Um, of course, Jeremy Corbyn's position is that Trident should not be renewed, and he wants um, a, a nuclear weapons-free UK. So you have this position where the leader says one thing, and then he's immediately contradicted by Shadow Defence Secretary Maria Eagle and others every time this issue comes up, and, and that's not, not the only one, um, as, I, as I point out in the piece. When um, the issue of uh, bombing um, Syria was, uh, was raised recently, um, Corbyn went further and said, I think we should review Britain's involvement um, in airstrikes against ISIS in Iraq. And, which is uh, a completely different situation, right? So the Iraqi government, which is a dem- democratically elected government, you know, whatever you think about the, the way they conduct their polls, invited us in to help, as they say, help them against uh, an insurgency. So that, you know, I'm, that is that kind of qualifies by, in the same way that like a UN resolution gives a kind of legitimacy to something, that has a legitimacy. The problem in Syria, I guess, being that we don't recognise Assad's government and therefore there's no force in Syria that can invite us in to, to do airstrikes. Um, Anusha, I want to pick up this idea because I, I was really surprised. When, you know, when Jeremy Corbyn first took over and people were kind of going, oh, the sky is falling in, this kind of, you know, this person who never wanted to be leader has ended up being, being leader... There was this sort of sense that actually this was going to be really crazy and mad and he was going to be making, you know, policy announcements hither and thither. And actually, I think, you know, as George's column picks up, he's quite boxed in, actually. And, you know, I mean, he's obviously made some concessions. He went to the Privy Council. He's become a Privy Councillor this week, so he's a right honourable. You know, and he's ended up in this situation where actually... The thing that people, I wonder if his supporters are going to feel like, hang on a minute, we voted for radical change, and what, where is, where's the radical change? Um, yeah, I agree with that. He hasn't been able to do, or do as much damage as people assumed, and I think perhaps his call for unity in the cabinet is actually perfectly fair because he's not actually making them compromise too much on the issues that they've held dearest, and he's and he has conceded quite a lot. And there is this. Um, I've been speaking to a few people on the more moderate side of the party recently, and their and their um, tactic at the moment, although some of them have been a, a bit mischievous, is muscular humility. That's how they that's how they <laughs> phrase it. So they say, right. you know, you know, we'll be um, sort of humble and we'll um, sort of accept some of most of the things that Jeremy Corbyn is saying, but we won't. We don't want to give any ground on foreign policy or on defence policy because those are the things that voters and also the rest of the world are least likely to forget, whereas the economy is something that fluctuates all the time. So they're happy to give him ground on the anti-austerity stuff. So actually, I think there's a bit more compromise and a bit more goodwill going on behind the scenes than perhaps we thought when he was first elected. We thought it was going to be complete chaos, and I don't think it is. Well, I think, yeah, and I don't know how you feel about that, George. What... What has Corbyn actually won? What Since he's taking over, what can he point to and say, this is a way I have changed the Labour Party? So he can point to the fact that it's now um, an explicitly anti-austerity party, um, although that was rather complicated by John McDonald. Beaten out, yeah. But Labour's position now is, is, is clear that we are opposed to all further, further cuts in, in public spending if you uh, exclude Trident, I suppose. Um, and then he can point to some political victories in that Labour, of course... In the Lords, uh, led the rebellion against tax credits there. He can point out that David Cameron's not going to hold a vote on airstrikes in Syria, and that's at least partly because he's an anti-war leader, so Labour MPs might be uh, less likely to support Cameron on that. And also we had the cancellation of the government's Saudi prison contract, which was one of the issues he raised in his conference speech, and which... um Here's a cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Conservatives sort of say was was one line that did uh, really make them think. And uh, are we in are we in the right place on this? Is this going to be a, a big um, embarrassment for us? What I think he's lacked is an overarching theme. Um, and, and a clearly defined sense of, of, of mission and, and purpose. And some MPs are quite surprised that he hasn't made a, a set piece speech yet on on his his vision for the party and on his mm. on his leadership. It, it's he's he's restricted himself to quite um, low level. And uh, but that's interesting, isn't it? Because it's that was I mean throughout the campaign. I did an event with Charles Clark on Monday night, and he his analysis of the leadership election was that about. You know, twenty to thirty percent of the people who voted for Corbyn, he says, you know, he thinks are hard left, you know, very strongly left wing people. The same people who voted for Diane Abbott, say, in the in the mayoral election. And then he says, you know, his analysis of the rest of the vote is that there was a large amount of people who just wanted change, and they saw Yvette Cooper and Andy Burnham as kind of continuity brown, and they saw Yvette, uh, Liz Kendall as kind of continuity Blair, and 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 they saw Jeremy Corbyn as as change. And this is what I find fascinating is that he. He hasn't. Man- I. I just don't feel he's racked up. You know, for, it's a, it's odd that all the attacks on the him in the press have focused on this kind of this idea that he's this kind of you know Che Guevara in a little cap with a beard. When actually, it's a really interesting demonstration of quite how much as a leader, you know, you have to work different levers of power. You have to kind of get people over to your side. You have to go through incredibly boring things like words like conference arrangements committee suddenly become. You know, that actually a large amount of political leadership is really dull. Really dull committee-based wrangling, right? Yeah, and as soon as you start talking about that stuff or trying to enact that stuff, then you sound like you're part of the evil establishment. And so you lose... I mean, for Jeremy Corbyn to start to start treating his leadership like that would be probably something that's quite off-putting to the people who supported him. I like this idea that in five years' time he might have a proper kind of Alistair Campbell-style news grid, <laughs> right? He would have just kind of discovered all those sort of hot, you know, things that New Labour kind of... In, uh, because, uh, you know... I think that one thing that kind of gets me is I think people are very hard on politicians. And fair enough, you know, they are aspiring to be in, in charge of us. But that actually politics is a really difficult, nasty, boring, often quite, you know, it's, it's a lot of, you know, most people, the bit of most people's jobs that maybe that they, do, you know, they find hardest to deal with is dealing with other people. And politics is all about getting other people to do things that you want them to do they might not agree with. Um, and I think it's really interesting that somebody who was so inspirational during the leadership contest has struggled to kind of govern in prose, I guess. I think one of the actually I think one of the best stories to come out of Labour conference this year was that he'd so it's an email had been leaked of the lines that he was feeding his MPs and one of the lines was a, you know a new kind of politics um, out with the machine politics kind of language out with the spin he was just spinning for them <laughs> not to, to say Here they is, weren't spinning but spinning <laughs> out with the lines to take is yeah. one of our lines to take yeah, yeah I think so um, George. There's been a, a kind of kerfuffle about Andrew Fisher, who's one of his leading um, aides, who is alleged to have kind of compa- well said, urged people to vote for a, a candidate from the class war party um, against Emily Benn at the election. That's turned into a bit of a proxy war, hasn't it? It has. So 
it's a struggle between um, those who support Jeremy Corbyn and in some cases who know Andrew Fisher. He's been um, a figure on the left of the Labour Party for for a while. And of course, you have opponents of Corbyn who think he should be expelled from the party. It's clearly against party rules, they say, to endorse uh, non-Labour candidates. Um, and they feel this is this could be a, a, a tactical victory for them against against Corbyn. It would be a, it would be a line in the sand. Um, and you're in this remarkable situation where he's been suspended by Labour's General Secretary Ian McNichol, but uh, Corbyn maintains that he has full confidence in him. John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor, came out um, immediately after him suspended and says yeah, he's one of the finest socialists I know, and um, you know he's, 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 he should be um, he should be uh, welcomed back. Um, and so I think the rulings likely need to be announced in January, and so that will be a, it's, it's a struggle essentially between uh, Corbyn's office and between um, the party HQ. And, and you speak to a lot of Labour MPs and, and, and people at uh, Labour's headquarters in Brewers Green, and they're making clear that very few people there, as is the case with with MPs, are, are Corbynites. And so. Corbyn's most radical supporters often speaking in terms of needing a clear out of the Labour bureaucracy to put some more like-minded people in because they do feel as if um, HQ will undermine Corbyn um, whenever they have the, the chance to do so. Or at least in, in situations like this, they will instinctively side with what they would see as the old Labour, yeah. the new Labour establishment rather than uh, with, with Corbyn. Well, we've got um, an, an interesting week in politics coming up. Narendra Modi is coming over from India, but uh, and um, more legislation um, that will cause some problems. We know that the spending review is causing all kinds of problems on the Conservative side, so that's probably something for, for next week. But for the moment, I'll say thank you very much to George and Anoush. I'm Tom Gatti, Culture Editor of the New Statesman. In 2013, Goldsmiths University and the New Statesman co-founded the Goldsmiths Prize to reward novels that show innovation and creative daring. This week, we announced our third winner, Kevin Barry. Barry's brilliant novel, Beetlebone, imagines John Lennon in the summer of 1978, stuck in a creative rut and traipsing around the west of Ireland trying to get to his island for a few days of solitary primal screaming. It's based on real events in that Lennon really did buy an island in Clue Bay, County Mayo, though he only visited it twice. I'll be talking to Kevin in an event at the Cambridge Literary Festival on the 29th of November, but for the moment I called up with him on the phone and asked him how he went about getting inside the head of John Lennon. I love him. I, I, I am a devotee, and, and the book is, is primarily written as kind of an act of fandom, really. But he is extremely capricious. Um, the research I did do for, for, for the book was to, was to watch lots of YouTube um, clips of, of interviews from the 70s on things like the Dick Cavett show in the US and his mood is so capricious sentence to sentence mm. you know he will go from very light and charming and, and funny one moment and half a sentence later he's really kind of paranoid and dark and quite spiky um, and to try and even begin to get a sense of that down on the page took a lot of work and a lot of drafts um, like it's, it, it, it attempts to be a portrait of the artist, so you're trying to give some kind of psychological likeness, um, and you're just extrapolating. Really, you're you're thinking, what what are what's any artist like? And we're 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 neurotic, and we're 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 we're, we're difficult often, um, and there are going to be moments of joy and moments of melancholy, and I had this weird weird image in mind actually of of 
the reader for this book. I wanted it to be like, I kept thinking of a deep fat fryer with a bubbling cauldron of oils. And that was the inside of his head. And I was going to lower the reader down into it and go, well, this is what it might have been like. (laughs) Um, And this is how it might have been. Um, So, yeah, I mean, in trying to get a a likeness for him, I, I found it most useful, actually, to try and think about who he was before that whole great um, maelstrom of fame, unprecedented kind of level of fame erupted around him. And, you know, he was just an art college kid in Liverpool, um, down the pub, bit shouty, kind of cool. That, that's, that's who he was. And, and that was very helpful, actually, to, to set him in that kind of relief. Go, oh, God, there he is at 17. And, and now go back 20 years later after the maelstrom um, and, and, and see, what, see what's happened, you know. And he was he was someone who was very interested in his own sort of dark places, wasn't he? Yeah, and I, I think like any like any creative person, um, I'm always quoting that line about happiness writes white. I don't know where it comes from. I think it could be an Iris Murdoch quote originally, but it's um, yeah, yeah. For for your to give any project you're on, whether it's a novel or a film or a painting or a song, to give it any emotional heft, I think you have to go into your own dark materials and you have to bring that to it. Um, and yeah, you have to give it some of that and you have to give some of your, you have to give some of yourself away always. Um, and you know, say what you like about him and I'm sure he was a tricky individual, but he was a great artist. Um, he, he wrote not just a few great songs, he wrote many of them. And, um, and of course, it was interesting as well that he had kind of literary leanings, you know, that he, he published a couple of books of, of fragments, I guess you could call them, um, but, uh, but, but was a reader and, and was kind of interested in, in the notion of Joyce, if not actually sitting down reading Joyce. Mm. and was big into Dylan Thomas, which is um, a fascination that persisted apparently into his adult years. And actually a text I looked at quite a bit when I was writing Beat the Bone was under Milkwood. Um, kind of discovered as I was going along it was kind of a play for voices this book and it was it was working on monologues and dialogues and um weirdly it's as 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 a novel it's kind of a radio play you know well there are lovely moments in it where he sort of finds a word in his mouth and kind of pauses for for a moment to kind of taste the shape of it yeah he he's obsessed with 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 words and with verbiage and with punning um and if you look at his his own books of writings that come out and writings is probably the term for them um you know he it was all punny stuff it was kind of very spike milligan puffed spike milligan in places going towards a kind of a joycey and kind of wordplay and things like that so and like the the writings do read like first drafts you know that he never bothered really really digging into in the way that he would have with his songwriting um but no he he, he was he was I, I thought he was possible to do because he had this kind of literary um intelligence i guess and 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 and, and you, you could imagine him maybe at some point trying to write a novel you know so it was um it was it was, it was one of the things that i felt left me in to, to give it a go um, the Goldsmith Prize, which is run, I should I should add, uh, with the New Statesman, my magazine, that's for innovative fiction, so for novels that somehow push the boundaries of the form. This is an absolutely horrible question for a writer, but why do you think the judges felt Beetlebone fit that description? Oh God, yeah, it is a horrible <laughs> question. Um, I, I I hope I hope that it tries things. Yeah. Um, I, I, I there's a lot going on for a relatively short book. It's about fifty thousand words, and there are a couple of plays in there, and there's an essay in there, all sorts of monologues and dialogues and and duologues going on. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I I never have a plan. I never sit down with a plan to write a really experimental piece or a really classical, really traditional piece. And as a reader, I actually don't mind at all if a piece is really avant-garde or if it's as traditional as Dickens. Um, all I'm interested in is good or bad. Is it an intense experience um, for the reader? And as a writer, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to give the reader an intense experience and, and, and present prose as a sensual thing um and 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 if i if if hopefully i mean with with the goldsmith's prize or with any prize jury that that it's that intensity that 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 causes people to respond to the work you talk about intensity i mean you've said that you wrote something like four hundred thousand words for this and it's a it's a book of around fifty thousand words yeah yeah begs the question what the hell are the other three hundred and fifty thousand words oh they're terrible man (laughs) (laughs) i guesstimated i was cleaning out my my working shed over the summer of all the drafts you know and i did a kind of a i was going wow there's reams of this stuff and i i i um did a kind of a rough count and I would say there's something like 350 or 400,000 yeah. words but that's all, that's always my method I mean I always have a rough idea how long I want something to be if it's a short story I'll think yeah this is going to be about four or 5,000 words but to get 5,000 words I'll write 10 or I'll write 12 and I'll cut um, and I guess to give a kind of a hackneyed analogy it's like the, the sculptor has a block of stone and you're just cutting away to find out the shape that, that that's in there hopefully um, yeah, I enjoy editing um, I enjoy that part of when I have a whole mass of messy material and I can start cutting. That's enjoyable because you feel useful. You feel almost like you have a trade. You feel artisanal. You know, <laughs> you, you you have techniques you can bring to it. The first draft stuff is just murder. I hate it. It's monstrous. Um, and I try to just blurb it out as quick as I can and, and not think about it too much. Just get that stuff down. Um, but strangely, actually, looking back at the very first draft I wrote four years ago, quite an amount of it has, has made it in, in in different form into into the finished book you know it just needed a lot of refining and, and and so forth as 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 i went through you're you're possibly asked this a lot at the moment but there's this feeling in the air that irish fiction is uh in a sort of rich new phase at the moment with lots of youngish writers and lots of independent presses producing some really interesting work i just wonder when you were starting out as a writer what did it mean to you to be an Irish writer? Was it a badge that was sort of ener- energizing I, or was it more like a millstone? I can honestly say I've never gone to my desk thinking, oh, I must do some Irish writing. <laughs> you know? But do you, think, do you think the opposite, I wonder? I mean, no, I, I just... I, 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 actually, I guess that's an interesting point. I guess sometimes as a, as a younger writer, definitely you, you kind of react against that. Um, in my 20s, I was desperately trying to write the next great Jewish-American novel. You know, right. you could circle around home for a long time yeah. before you go in there as a writer um, I mean at the moment there definitely seems to be a very a very buzzy kind of um, ecosystem if you like in Ireland with lots of new presses and small journals and things like that um, and there's a lot of first books coming out and a lot of second books coming out um, like we always have lots of writers here, yeah. Because, because I guess of the of the many traditions of Irish literature there are, it doesn't seem like a crazy thing to do here, to announce to the pub that you're about to write a novel and yeah. maybe a masterpiece. No, it seems like pretty standard way of a way of 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 negotiating life, you know. Um, so there's never been a, there's never been a lack, God help us, of of writers here. But it, definitely there's been really strong work over the last few years, and I hope some of the kind of the radical tradition in Irish literature is starting to reemerge as well. That that you know that that we had with Beckett and Joyce and Flann O'Brien and Lauren Stern, 
and Dermot Healy where it's really kind of anarchic and not afraid to go nuts on the page and, and, and really try new things. Was it helpful for you to leave and then come back? I think so, yeah. I mean, on a very pragmatic level with, with Beetlebone, it helped that I lived in Liverpool for two years mm. um, in the mid-zeros, as we horribly called that decade. <laughs> but it was, um, um, yeah, I think it's good. A, a lot of the stories in my first collection, there are little kingdoms, um, are kind of set around small Irish towns. Mm. And I've never actually lived in a small Irish town. I grew up in a city in Limerick, but it was... Um, those were all written when I was living in the UK, actually. So it's definitely a kind of, there's a kind of a useful kind of um, homesickness or something that can that can definitely be an aid to your to your fiction. Your your first novel, City of uh, Bohan, was also set in the in the west of Ireland, but in in the future in a sort of lawless Western dystopia. Yeah. And that's such a richly imagined world. Do you have any plans to return to it at any point? Interestingly, I do. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be the next book. Um, I always knew when I was writing City of Bohan, you know, that, that the best character in it was the city and that the city worked as a place. And I knew I was going to come back again because when you build a little city, it feels like real estate <laughs> at some level <laughs> and you've got to get use out of it. So, yeah, I'm going to go back. I wrote the first one around 0809. And if I start the next one next year, I'll make it about eight or nine years later in Bowen and I'll go back and I'll see what's going on out in that strange place. Nothing good, I imagine. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm kind of juiced about it. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I have the language for that place naturally because it's really, it's about gro- having grown up in actual demented Irish cities called Limerick and Cork. So I, I, I kind of have, I have the language for it so I can just go in, I think, pretty quickly into that and hopefully not have to do a 400,000 word draft. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and would you ever like to see that on, on the screen, big or small? Because it seems, in some ways, it's so, it, it's such a kind of oh, cinematic Oh, yeah, setting. completely. Like, it, it, it steals, Bohan steals so much from TV and from um, film, and it has been developed in that in that long process yeah. um, at the moment. Uh, initially as a film project, now I think it's a TV project, so... Oh. Fingers remain crossed, and, and, and hopefully at some point, yeah. Oh, well, that's something to look forward to. Um, Kevin, thanks so much for talking to us, and congratulations again on the prize. Thanks, Thomas. Real pleasure, man. Thanks. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. 
And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.